There is a, um, a movie in the theaters. Uh, I don't normally promote movies in theaters, uh, but this one I think would be something you might want to consider looking at. It's called The Essential Church. And uh, this movie is basically a more of a movie documentary about what happened out in California with Grace Community Church and John MacArthur and the elders out there when they were facing a lot of uh, uh, very legal action, legal action against uh, the church from Governor uh, Newsom. And they were doing everything they could to shut that church down during the, the COVID crisis. And... Uh, You'd have to see it for yourself just to see just how far California was willing to go to stop that church from meeting. And, uh, of course, there were two pastors that also talks about that were jailed in, uh, in Canada. And uh, we are so thankful to God how God has taken care of those churches and prospered those churches because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I share that with you because uh, it's going to be in the theaters, I think, a couple more days, and sadly it's not here in Columbia as far as I know. You have to go to Augusta or Greenville or Charlotte, uh, but it's worth the trip. Lord willing, whenever it finally comes out in a, a DVD format, we'll try to have it here for those of you who were not able to go and see it. But it really, really puts in perspective God's faithfulness to a people who want to meet together and worship God in spite of the overreach of the government. Uh, we were blessed here, folks. We really, really were. I mean, because we didn't have any of that. We just didn't. Uh, our governor was gracious enough to make it very clear to us, look, if, if you want to meet together, meet together. That's up to you. And uh, we checked the, the laws at that time to make sure we were doing what we needed to do. And God was gracious to us. So it is a wonderful thing to hear how God is faithful. And I share all of that to share this. This is the reason why I shared this to you. Um, John MacArthur shares a story in one of the interviews regarding that event called the Essential Church and what happened to them. That whenever he came to Grace Community Church nearly 50 years ago, that he preached his first sermon. And uh, usually when you go into a church and you're there to preach your first sermon as the pr prospective pastor, you want to do a good job. You want to give the best sermon you can. And you want to, uh, obviously, in hopes of maybe becoming the pastor of that church, where, well, he did that, and he preached for an hour and a half. After the service, his wife said to him, well, that's it for that church. <laughs> and, of course, later on, uh, some of the leadership of that church came to him and said, would you teach us the Bible like that every Sunday? That's 50 years ago. And now he is, uh, again, a faithful man of God, highly influential in my life. He's been really one that has molded me in many ways, and I'm so thankful for him and the elders out at Grace. Well, also to add to that, the very next Sunday whenever he came to preach the second sermon, there was a big clock on the wall in the back. I am so thankful y'all haven't done that here. It gives me absolute total freedom. Well, anyway, if you have a chance, get, uh, you want to go and travel and see that, I would encourage you to do so. And uh, like I said, we'll try to have it here whenever it finally comes out in a format that we can watch it also. So let's open our Bibles now to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I, I missed being with you last Lord's Day. Believe me, I would have much rather had been here than to be sick at home. But I'm very thankful for Sandy, and he uh, towed the line, both leading the music and the sermon. And uh, Chris Olds is down in Charleston preaching at his mother's church. And you always, if you don't mind, if you think about him, pray for him uh, there today. But for today, we return to our study. We've been looking at James for a little while now, and uh, we're in chapter 4. And we've had two messages already on the topic of slander. And today will be the last message regarding that in James 4, 11 through 12. But today it's going to broaden a little bit. It's going to go beyond slander, although clearly we'll include that. We're going to be talking about the subject of why sin is so serious. Why sin is so serious. James 4, verse 11 and 12. Listen to the word of God. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. 
Who are you to judge another? One of the uh, common objections that atheists raise regarding the God of the Bible is how he judges sin. It's believed that it's overly harsh to bring a death sentence on someone who has committed one act of disobedience, as is the case with Adam and Eve in the garden whenever they disobeyed God. And then, of course, to disobey God, and then God brings upon them an enormous, eternal punishment. The punishment of cursing their work, of guaranteeing marital conflict, and above all, bringing spiritual and physical and pain and sorrow and death, not only in a limited fashion, but also forever and even upon their children for one act of disobedience. A second objection that atheists often raise is much like the first. How can God, how can God punish people in hell forever for a temporal amount of sin? In other words, how is it just for God to punish men and women who have only lived 70 or 80 years and have only sinned during that time and yet to be punished forever and ever in hell for all eternity? How is it that a finite amount of sin leads to an infinite amount of punishment? Some have never murdered or committed crimes that would be considered in our legal system capital crimes that would bring death. Yet many people who have never done such sins are sentenced to an eternal damnation with no chance whatsoever of ever getting out. Both of these objections seem on the surface to be insurmountable problems and seem to be at first legitimate objections to the biblical God by the atheist. But they're just surface concerns because there's much more to this than what the atheist objects to. It is true, and we should clearly note this, that it is true that God did pronounce capital punishment and really eternal punishment on Adam and Eve for one act of disobedience. The sin that occurred in a moment of time was given eternal, everlasting punishment. And it is true that men live a finite amount of time on the earth and they commit a finite amount of sin on the earth and are given an infinite amount of punishment forever in hell. And it will never be stopped, lessened, or repealed. And if you've ever struggled with those two objections, you're not the first to do so. In fact, um, Clark Pinnock wrote in 1990, and I quote, I was led to question the traditional belief of everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations, not first of all on scriptural grounds, he concedes. It just does not make any sense to say that God is a God of love who will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. It's time for evangelicals to come out and to say that the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. He is not alone. John Stott also wrote, Emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Both Pinnock and Scott opted for a growing and more popular view of the punishment of God known as annihilationism. You simply go out of existence. You no longer exist. This, by the way, is a popular view, and it grows more in the context of liberalism. And also, whenever there's an exaltation of man and a devaluation of God... The better man looks in his own eyes, the less belief he will have in the just punishment of God. And the lower God looks in his eyes, the less holy God is to the mind of man. 
So the conclusion will be, what right does God have to punish man forever who is not really that bad? He's just not that bad. This kind of thinking is really a product of, obviously, the sinful heart of man, but also in our day, even the evolutionary uh, teaching that has really dominated our education system over the years, and also it's a product of an unbiblical view of God. Large populations of people today have been influenced by evolutionary thought that believes basically that you and I are a chance collision of atoms. We are just swamp mud that has become vertical now and has learned how to walk. You live, you die. That's it. There's nothing else. Nothing else matters. You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal. So what? Who cares? You're just a meaningless bag of mostly water anyway, so who cares what you do? You come and you go. You're here for a while and you leave and you go out of existence. You eat, you drink, and you're merry as... The New Testament says, for tomorrow you die. Why make such a big issue out of it anyway? Then you have, again, a newer generation coming up who's not only been influenced by the evolutionary thought in the education system of America and the universities, but also have a spattering of biblical education. Just a spattering of it. They don't have a real deep understanding of God or his word, but a a spattering of it. They've been taught about the God of the Bible, and, but they really have a God of their own imaginations. It's not the God of the Bible. It's a God of love. It's a God who does not have wrath or justice for sin. It's a God who laughs at the indiscretions of our youth. He really doesn't care how you live because he loves you so very much. This is the God of contemporary evangelicalism also, by the way. He's the good old boy God. He's the man upstairs. He's the Santa Claus God of the South. He knows when you've been sleeping and he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. Isn't that sweet? That is so nice and so polite. But that's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. And that is not the God that every single person on this planet will meet whenever they close their eyes in death. The reason why we have begun to see questions like this about eternal punishment is because people don't understand the seriousness of sin and they don't understand the holiness of God. Or we might say it like this, that they don't understand just how holy God really is. Or just how just he really is. We have concluded that we are not that bad. In fact, we have recategorized sin. We have made sin a sickness in many ways. And we have made ourselves the victim of sin rather than the perpetrator. We have reclassified it in such a way that we have diminished the reality of the seriousness of sin... And we have eliminated the offense of God. Then to add to that fire, the evangelical culture woefully is ignorant of this biblical God. Pulpits in America very rarely, if ever, teach on the proper view of God or theology proper or the character of God. They're too afraid of running everybody off. Arthur Pink was one of those men that wrote extensively on the character of God. The book that he's most popular for is The Sovereignty of God, which is a book either you're going to love or you're going to hate. You're either going to love it, read it, go through it, and be just inspired by it and look at the biblical God that is presented there, or you're going to hate it and want to burn it and cut it up and get rid of it. Arthur Pink wrote at the very beginning of that book, he said this, How different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? 
The conception of deity, which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of the 20th century is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of the popular mind is a creation of maudlin sentimentality. The God of many in the present-day pulpit is an object of pity rather than awe-inspiring reverence. Years and years now have passed, and now decades have passed, of shallow sermons with very little understanding of the character of God. It has left the church disabled at best and paralyzed at worst of how to think rightly about the doctrine of sin and the character of God. Imagine for a moment, let's just assume, imagine for a moment that Pinnock and, and Stott are right, that there is no eternal conscious torment for those who have rejected Christ and sinned against him. Imagine for a moment that what they believe about annihilationism is true, that when you die, you simply go out of existence. Well, that might be okay for a little while, until you witness Adolf Hitler standing before God. A man, no doubt, that committed such atrocities against humanity that they're hard even to comprehend or even explain. All the men, women, and children that he purposely transported to the death camps to be starved, murdered, and experimented upon with all of his blasphemous demonic rhetoric and speech spewing out of his mouth, his consistent rejection, rebellion, and defiance of the God of heaven, his desire to usurp the throne of God and place himself there and be the one who determines whether you live or whether you die. He was a hate-filled man, a godless man, a demonic, a, a man who was filled with demons. He enjoyed the pain of others and he lusted for the power to do so. And now, this man is brought before the throne of God only to hear, Hitler, you no longer exist. You know what he would say? Wow, that is great. In fact, my belief in evolution taught me that anyway. That I had no eternal soul. That I didn't really have a purpose. I had no accountability. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I'm just going to go out of existence. I believe that if that happened, that that would bring a smile upon Adolf Hitler's face. Annihilationism. You just don't exist anymore. He would say, thank you very much. Now, if you're like me, your heart, if you're present there at that time, would be screaming for justice. You would be saying, surely that is not the case. Over six million people murdered at his hands, and yet he just ceases to exist? Listen, annihilationism is not the answer. It is the escape hatch that is used often to remove yourself away from the severity of God and his holiness and our own personal accountability for our sin. Annihilationism removes you from all pain, all remorse, all regret, all punishment. I mean, think of it like this. 150 years ago, none of us existed. Is anybody in here around then? None of us existed. Do you remember having any pain 150 years ago? Any regret? Any sorrow over sin? Any concern about your accountability? Any worry at all concerning any of those things? No, you did not exist. And the same will be the case for the person who, if it is true, is annihilated. What they have done in this life brings no accountability, no judgment. They simply do not exist at all. Justice has not been served. Justice has not been served. Annihilationism, as John Piper said, takes sin and unbelief from its rightful place of high treason and makes it a misdemeanor. So what about God punishing men and women in hell forever for a limited time of sin? What about that? 
Now, what about Adam and Eve having only sinned once in the garden and yet having received eternal damnation and sorrow and pain and judgment for them and their children because of one sin? What about that? Well, biblically speaking, if you have a biblical worldview, it's not that hard to comprehend why it's like that. It really isn't. If you understand the biblical teaching of God and the biblical teaching of sin and understand just how serious sin really is, then it will help you to understand why men receive eternal damnation for sin. Let me just try to illustrate it just for a moment. Take lying, for instance. I think most of us, if we were honest, would say that we've lied at some point, right? So let's just say for a moment you lie to a friend. Well, the punishment then might not be quite as severe. They're probably not going to take you out and strap you to a pole and beat you with straps and whips 40 times. You could lose your friendship as a result of that, but that will be about the extent of it. Now, if you lie to your parents as a child, you know that you could receive a spanking, right? At least I hope that happens. If you lie to a police officer, depending on what the lie is about, you could be arrested and you could spend some time in jail. Now, if you lie to a judge in the courtroom, you could go to prison. They're all lies, are they not? They're all lies. But the person lied to and their position that they hold and the authority that they carry increased the punishment exponentially. It's not so much the act of sin that raises the bar. It's who you sin against that raises the bar. Now take that illustration a little further. All of those that I just used as that illustration, your friends, your parent, the police officer, and the judge, they are all in the same boat all of us are. They're all sinners. They're all those that have fallen short of the perfections and standards of God. And yet, even with them, the higher up you go, the more severe the punishment can be. You take that same lie and lie to God. And lie to God. Now, he is the highest authority. There's no one greater than him. There's no judge greater than him. There is no court above him at all. There is no judge that can overrule his ruling. He is the highest authority in heaven and earth. And he always absolutely dispenses justice perfectly. Never misses. So you have not just sinned against man, you have sinned against God. You remember the story over in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, wherever they sold the property and they had committed in their hearts that they were going to give money to the church? Well, apparently, initially, they had made a commitment to God that they were going to give all the money to the church. They sold the property and then they got the money and they started thinking, hey, you know, we can do a little bit with this, a little bit with that. We'll keep back part of the price. We'll give the rest of it to the church. Nobody will know. Only God knows anything about what we said anyway. Well, what they did is this. They lied to God. They lied to God. Peter confronts them there and he says, listen, you have not lied to men. You have lied to God. You remember what happened, right? They were both struck dead for lying to God. So the point is, whenever we think about the severity of sin and the seriousness of sin, we have to understand that we're not sinning against a man. We're sinning against the highest authority that there is. We're, we're sinning against the infinite God of heaven. And so that sin, that act of disobedience, that lie, whatever it may be, brings upon it the most severe punishment that an infinite God can bring. The second point needs to be understood also about this punishment and you may have not thought of it like this, but it is clear, as far as the doctrines in the Bible are concerned, it is very, very clear that hell is eternal punishment. 
In fact, those words are used in the same context of eternal reward and eternal heaven. So if heaven is eternal and the same words are used for hell, we would assume clearly that both mean the same thing. We don't have temporal heaven. We have eternal heaven. And the Bible talks, and Jesus warned so many times about eternal punishment in hell. But like I told you, some have argued, well, listen, if you've only sinned for 70 or 80 years, how is it that you could receive an infinite amount of punishment forever in hell? Well, I think it's important for you to understand something you may have never thought of. That a person who dies without Christ, listen to this, never stops sinning. You don't all of a sudden die, so, whoop, done with that. Have no problem with that anymore. No, no, no. The only ones who have been given that gift are the ones who have trusted in Christ, and they have been made a new creature in Christ. They have had the Holy Spirit deposited into them, and they are on a path by God's design to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And when they do die, that flesh that has been the problem for so long is going to drop away and the heart that has been deceitful and evil for so long is going to be transformed and changed. And they're going to be a new person in Christ forever and ever and ever and never sin again. Now for the person who dies without Christ, none of that is promised to them. None of that is granted and none of, the, none of that is given. In fact, the person who dies without Christ, the Bible indicates by the words that it uses, tells us that the person who is in hell continues to sin and rebel against God. In fact, there's nothing in the Bible that ever tells us that there's a great evangelistic movement of God in hell. That all of a sudden, there's, because they're there, and because they know that there's a God, and because they know the judgment that they have received, that all of a sudden they said, oh, no, 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 I should have never done that. I should have always believed. No, they continue and continue and continue in rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible says there are two kinds of people in hell. There are those that actually weep and those that gnash their teeth. The ones that are weeping are the ones who say, you know what, I really messed up. I really messed up. I didn't obey the command of the gospel. I didn't repent. I didn't come. I didn't follow Christ. I really messed up. And they weep for all eternity. And then there are those that gnash their teeth. And the gnashing of the teeth is not, oh my goodness, I'm in this pain. They're gnashing their teeth because they hate God. They hate him for putting, putting them there for all eternity. I think it's also interesting to note that whenever you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, the rich man who closes his eyes in death and it says immediately he opened his eyes in torments in hell, not one time in that entire passage does it ever say that the rich man says, you know what, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't just. God's done me wrong. No, the only thing the rich man says is, would someone please go back and tell my brothers about this so that they won't come to this place? Even the rich man in Luke 16 recognized that he was justly put there and deserving of the punishment that he received. You see, one of the things that should be in our minds and the forefront of our minds whenever we think about sin is sin is so serious and you can understand just how serious it is because of the eternal nature of the punishment that is given. God takes sin seriously. So much so... Although we're not in that topic today, it should be explained that whenever the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, he took upon himself the full wrath of God for our sin. He was beaten, he was crucified, he was spat upon for our sin. The full wrath of God came upon his own son for our sin. God is so serious about sin that he even would punish his own son so that you and I would be exempt from the wrath of God. That's an amazing, powerful statement about the seriousness of sin. Now, when we come to our text today, you may have never thought we would get there on this, but this is exactly what James is talking about. He's talking about the serious nature of sin. The serious nature of sin. The context of what we're discussing here is the sin of slander. But it's much bigger than that. In fact, what James brings up in this passage that I've read earlier not only addresses the serious nature of the sin of slander, but the serious nature of sin itself. 
Every act of disobedience to God, every violation of his command, every willful act of rebellion against him, every time we disregard his word and don't do what he says, we are acting in violation of the holy of heavens itself. And we are in defiance of the highest court in heaven. And I'll show you this as we work our way through it. So let's go to the text here. And I'm going to remind you, since it's been now almost three weeks since you heard the first or the second sermon on slander. So I'm just going to remind you of a couple of things. And the first thing we noted in verse 11, this is James 4:11, was the command. Very clear, right? Do not speak evil of one another. Do not speak evil of one another. Or the Greek word katalaleo means to speak against or to speak down to. As I told you before, it's not only to be against someone, but it's the idea of speaking someone down. You're cutting them down. You're defaming their character. You're slandering them. You can do this a number of ways. As one lexicon said, it refers to a mindless, thoughtless, careless, critical, derogatory, untrue speech directed against others. I noted also that you can use true things about the person to slander them. As we've already noted that someone may have come to you and confessed a sin to you that they had committed and the Lord had forgiven them and they reconciled with their brother. But instead of you being willing to keep your mouth shut, you go and spread the actual sin the brother committed to someone else. It may be true that that's what he did, but you just slandered your brother. How many of us in this room today would love to have all of our sins exposed upon this screen? Not only the sins that we actually commit, but the sins that we think. None of us would be willing to have that. I think if we could do that, we'd, we'd see a, the exit doors would really get loaded pretty quick. All of us understand that. We get that. We, we know that. But why is it that we're so willing and so eager to do the, the sin of slander to a brother? As one pastor said, it includes a willful false accusation, an exaggeration of faults that are real, needless repetition of real faults, and also slander. One commentary made the distinction between gossip and slander, said gossip is to take a true story where it should not go. Slander is to create and spread false stories and take them everywhere they should not. It's one of the, it's the sin of the same coin, if you will. It's the flip side of the same thing. You gossip, you slander. You slander, you gossip. It can be true or false, whatever you share. The command is that you and I should not do that. We're commanded not to. This is not optional. Every time we do, we disobey God. Every time we do, we rebel against his command. Slander occurs whenever someone says something about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that's someone else's reputation. And when it occurs, it becomes a decisive, discouraging, confusing weight that is often affecting more people than one, numerous people. It can be anything that is shared about a brother or sister or someone else that is true or false with the intent and the result of changing the perception of that person in a negative or evil way. We've went over that two times already. That's why I'm reading it a little faster. What is slander? In 1886, Joseph Rooks described it this way. It is a verdict of guilty pronounced in the absence of the accused. It is the verdict of guilty pronounced in the absence of the accused with closed doors without defense and appeal by an interested and prejudiced judge. Hmm. We've hammered that pretty hard and I know that it's a tough subject to go through because all of us find ourselves dealing with the sin of slander but now we want to move on to the concern we talked about that a little bit already I just want to quickly move through through this the concern is stated for us in this text and what James does here in an escalating form he takes the sin of slander and he shows how serious it is because of what and who it affects. And I'll show you what I mean. The first point we'd already noted this is that sin 
the sin of slander is so serious because you're willing to slander someone that is a brother. A brother. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother. We noted how enormously sinful and evil this is because you are attacking the bride of Christ. You are slandering the very people which Jesus Christ died for. You are maligning and ruining the reputation of those that are to be witnesses for the gospel of Christ. Those are serious, serious problems. And the second point is this, and now we're going to move on to our message this morning about where sin is even more serious because of what you're slandering. Look at the text again. He says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges a brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. So if you're willing to slander, it is clear that you do not understand what you are slandering. Not only who you are slandering, but what you are slandering. He says, if you slander, you speak evil or you slander the law and you judge the law. Now, this is where it gets broader. It's more than just slander. This is where we, get, we begin to get a little bit more depth of the doctrine of sin described in the Bible because he's talking more now about not only the sin of slander, but every sin. Every sin is an attack against the law of God. Slander is particularly evil because it sets its words or your words up against the very words of God. And I'll show you how in a little bit. It declares that your statements, listen to this carefully, it declares that your statements about the character of someone else is more true than what God says. That's where most of our quarrels and our problems come from, as I've already noted. In verse 11, it says, he who speaks evil, the word speaks here is the present participle means that it is a characteristic of that person, a habitual person, a habitual problem in that person or his life. One commentator said it does not refer to the occasional slip of the tongue. I don't like that. I never have liked that. You know, I've heard people say the reason why we have so much trouble with our tongue is it's full of slime inside of our mouth and it slides all over the place. Listen, slips of the tongue? Really? Slips of the tongue? We say what's in our heart. That's what Jesus said. We say what's in our heart. If you think you're slipping, you're not slipping. You're intentional. You're intentional. It's coming out of the heart. It's coming out of the heart. I understand what he means in the sense of the context of characteristics of people and habitual actions of people. Yes, I get it. Yes, a person who is habitually characterized as a slanderer, there's a real problem here. There's a real problem as to whether the person's even converted. And yes, it is true that even as believers, as he even indicates in the text, as Christians, yes, all of us can fall into this sin. We can commit this sin. We can slander. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to believers, and he's addressing the problem that was going on in that church. But notice the text again in verse 11. He says, the one who speaks evil or slanders his brother judges his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Now these words, to speak evil of and judge the law, are used in a grammatical context that means basically this. He's speaking of the same thing, that whenever you speak down to and you speak against the law, you're judging the law, evaluating the law. Better put, devaluing the law. Devaluing the law. They are participles without a definite article. It puts them together. And because of slander, and through the means of slander, you move from a wrongful representation of the brother to condemnation of the brother. Now you're not only speaking evil of that person, but you have made conclusions about that person, and you have set yourself up as the judge and the jury over the character of that man or woman. You have determined that 
he is evil and has done some evil, and you treat him as such. That's where it's going in this text. When you and I slander, we judge a person. That's what we're doing. Slander is just the fruit of it. You've already judged them. You've already determined whether they're good, bad, or ugly, whatever. You've already done that. That's already been going on for some time. Now you've put it in words. You've laid it out there. You are claiming, as Alistair Begg said, you are claiming they have failed to do something they should have done or they are doing something they shouldn't do. And this is usually what happens. And the sad reality is it usually happens when we don't have all the facts. And it's very rare that we ever have all the facts. It's very rare. Alistair Begg went on to say slander and passing judgment are almost inseparable sins. When we speak against our brother, we are inevitably judging him. Slander, I said, is preceded by and followed after the very sin of judging. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 7, right? Judge not lest you be judged, right? Now, I want to make sure that I'm very clear about that. He's not saying that we cannot evaluate and cannot have discernment. He's not saying that. Later on in the Gospel of John, he even says that whenever we do judge, we should judge righteous judgment. But what he's discussing in Matthew 7 is a judgment that was created by the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They had a list of standards that they had created, and they determined whether you were righteous or not by their standards, not by God's standards. And whenever you do this, whenever you act this way, James is telling us that we speak against the law, and we judge the law. It unveils a deep, reprehensible practice. James is telling us that this is not what should be characteristic of a Christian. I mean, think of it like this. What is it that should really govern our relationships? I'll give you a hint. 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Love. In fact, if you remember in the book of James, he talks about the perfect law and the law of liberty. He talks about the royal law. He addresses the very point where the Bible says that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? The overarching means of our conduct and motivating factor of our conduct should be love for one another. We love one another. We care for one another. We encourage one another. We admonish one another. All stems out of this tremendous agape love, this sacrificial, selfless love for one another. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus said this regarding the question of what is the greatest commandment. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves another fulfills the law and the commandments that say, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandments, you shall, they shall be summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 4, excuse me, Galatians 5, 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, and I'll add one in there too, just in parenthesis because it's not the scripture, slander one another. Beware lest you be consumed or consume one another. You see, slander is the absolute antithesis of this, is it not? It's not the fulfillment of the law of love. It's the opposite of that. It disregards the very laws of God. And you can even go as far as to say this. It disregards the very laws that Jesus said are the greatest commandments. It says to God, your, your laws are great for what you have, but I have a better law. 
You remember in Acts, not Acts, but Exodus chapter 20, we have the, the Ten Commandments, right? And in the Ten Commandments, did you realize that if you practice what Jesus said about loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, you'll obey the Ten Commandments? I mean, if you love God the way you should, you will not have any other gods in his place. If you love God the way you should, as Jesus indicated, you will not make an idol of the one true God or one like another God. If you love God the way you should, you will not take the name of the Lord God in vain. You won't blaspheme his name or defame his name. If you love the Lord God the way you should, you'll honor the day of the Lord the way you should. You're not motivated by fear. You're not motivated by the threatenings of God. You're motivated because you love him and you desire to please him. Therefore, you want to do this. To add the next commandment, if you truly love your neighbor as yourself, then you as a child will love your parents and honor your parents and obey your parents, and you will not desire to dishonor them. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to kill him. Pretty self-explanatory, right? If you love your spouse the way you should, you're not going to commit adultery on them. If you love your neighbor, you won't desire to take what is his. If you love your neighbor, you will not desire, you rather you will desire what is good for your neighbor and you will not slander his name or bear false witness. If you love God and love the neighbor as you should, then you will want the best for your neighbor and not covet what God has blessed for him and rejoice with him whenever he is blessed of God. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Sin is the violation of that very law. And whenever he says that you set yourself up where you're speaking against and you judge the law, what he is basically saying is this, is that you set yourself up above the law. You and your evaluation and your standards and your belief system has become the determiner of what is right, what is wrong, or the character of a person. You become a law unto yourself, you become your own standard, you defame, you diminish, you extinguish the very laws of God in your life. You show utter disregard for the divine standard. This is the nature of sin as a whole, and this is what makes sin so serious, and especially even the sin of slander. It violates the law, but it not only violates the law. It says to God, your law is not important. It's not important. And what it does is this. It really gets at the root of the problem, does it not? Because here's the root. Here's the root of all sin, pride. Pride says, I'm in control. I do what I want to do. I don't care what you say. I am my own king and my own superior authority. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do. God, you can say all you want to, but I'm doing what I want to. Oh, we say, oh, we don't do that. Well, you do it actively and you do it passively. But you do it. I do it. We all do it. It's an act of pride. You'll say to God, you'll not have any restraint on me. You're not going to put any fences up for my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go where I want to go. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to judge what I want to judge. I'm going to evaluate what I want to evaluate. I really don't care what you have to say. You may even be saying, I know what God said, but I know what I'm saying. <laughs> I know what God says in his word, but I have a better opinion of the matter. You may think that you're in charge whenever God's really the one in charge. We are so wrong whenever we think like that, are we not? We are so wrong. As one author said this, you are ascending into the steps of heaven, walking into the throne room of God and saying to him, I will not have this God to rule over me. Every, listen, every time we sin, that's what we do. Every single time. You're saying to God, you are totally unworthy of my attention, totally unworthy of my affection, totally unworthy of my submission. We are a law unto ourselves. When you willfully and wrongfully represent and misrepresent a brother to another person in slander, you are in effect saying... God, your law does not matter. I have a higher law. I have a higher standard. As 
As one author said this, all law demands is obedience and deliberate transgression says in effect that the law is bad, too strict perhaps, and that our standards are superior. Another author said this, however high and orthodox your view of God's law might be, a failure to do it says to the world that we do not in fact put much stock in it. I think that was on the screen for the announcements, there was a quote by Vody Bauckham who said that if you want to know what a person's worldview is, don't listen to what they say, watch what they do. We say much more by what we do than what we say. You can say you believe this and you can say you believe that. You can say you're willing to honor God and do this and do that. But if you act in a sinful manner, you're teaching the complete opposite. Look at verse 11 again. He says, but if you judge the law, he says, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, he has this in his mind, this picture of the courtroom where you have the judge He's the one who is at that moment, if you will, above the law. He is going to make pronouncements about the law. He's going to bring a verdict on you because of your act of disobedience to the law. And you're not a doer of the law anymore. You're the guy up there declaring what the law is. You're the guy interpreting the law. You're the guy bringing the verdict. You're not practicing it the way you should. Instead, you've elevated yourself up to the bench. You're judging the law to be an unworthy, to be obeyed, and you've set yourself up as a superior judge of the law and the brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, Alistair Begg said, when we are tempted to pass judgment, an honest look at our own sinfulness should cause us to pause. As we start ascending the steps to become the judge, we should take a moment and look at our own hearts. That's why Jesus said in that passage in Matthew 7, you know, if you're going to judge others, be aware you're going to be judged by that same standard. You need to consider the two-by-four plank that's in your own eye instead of the little splinter that's in someone else's eye. It's much easier to see the other man's failures and faults and sins than it is to be honest with our own sin and our own failures. Slander is, in fact, that kind of sin. It is a serious sin. So is all sin. It is as if you have ascended the very bench of God. You have taken over the courtroom. You have usurped the authority as the judge. You're no longer a doer of the law, but now you're a judge. One last point, and this comes faster. Here in verse 12 now, and this is James's rebuke. This is his rebuke of that line of reasoning and that thought. He says in verse 11, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now that's strong. I should just read that and we could close with communion, right? In fact, uh, James 4.12 is in the New American Standard and other translations with the, based on the older manuscripts say there is only one lawgiver and judge. Clearly based upon what he's already been talking about. That God is the only source of law. He is the lawgiver. The, the law, by the way, is just an expression of his character. That's what it is. The law expresses his personal holiness, yes, in prohibitions to us, because we can't do that. We can't be as holy as God is. But it is an amazing amount of arrogance on our part to believe that we have somehow set God and his ability to make law aside, and that we have become the lawmaker. We're the lawmaker. I mean, who do we think we are, right? Right? By the way, I just want to let you know this in case you're wondering. There are no vacancies in the bench of God's courtroom. There's no other judge. He's not retiring. There's no job offers available. It's impossible, by the way, for us to be a judge like God. 
I mean, think of it like this. He's sovereign, right? Is he not? He's sovereign. That means he answers to no one. He answers to no one. He is the ruler. That means he can carry out his judgments. He is also omniscient, which means he knows everything. There's nothing hidden from his sight. There's no thought, no action, no attitude, no motive that is hidden from him. No matter what you say, no matter how many times you put your hand on the Bible and say, Today, I will swear upon this Bible that I will say the truth and nothing but the truth. God knows whether you said the truth or not. God knows whether I say the truth or not. See, God is omniscient. He's the ruler and he's sovereign. You and I can't even be a judge. Why are we trying to climb up and take over? Why are we trying to do what we can't do? We don't have all the information, folks. We don't have all the facts. God is the one who authored the law. God is the one who administrates the, the law. He serves both as the executive and the judicial branches of divine government. He is the king. He institutes and declares the law. He is the judge. He upholds his own law, and he enforces that law. He enforces that law. That's why he says in the text that he is the one who saves and destroys. He's not only the law giver. He is the judge who has the ability to save and destroy. You and I can't do that. We can't do that. We can't save anybody. Only God can save. He's the only one who has the power to save. Sozo, the words, the Greek word for salvation, and the word ability here, or able to save, is the word dunamis. It means power, and it's the power of God to save, to deliver from his own judgment. But also it's important to remind ourselves that not only can he save, but as James reminds us, he can destroy. He's a judge that not only is the lawgiver, but he's also the one that can bring the sentence and carry it out. He can save, yes, and we're so thankful he does. We're here today because he does. He's a saving God, desires mercy upon thousands. He is gracious to us, and that's why we live. That's why we're forgiven. But please remind yourself, he is also a God who destroys. He destroys. Apollomy is the Greek word. It means to cause to be destroyed or to brought into ruin. It doesn't have the idea of annihilation, but it does have the idea that your life will be ruined and destroyed. You go against the God of heaven, the sovereign one of the universe, and think that you're going to be the judge? You think you're going to bring a right accusation against someone by your own standards? You believe that you have the right to set aside the very laws of God and make up your own standards? There's only one lawgiver who has the ability to save and destroy, and it is the sovereign God of heaven himself, heaven itself, Yahweh. So then he concludes in verse 12, who are you to judge another? Who am I to judge another? Who am I to sin against my brother by bringing false accusations against him and slandering his character? I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. I don't have all the facts. I may think I do, but I don't know his heart. Let me close with a couple of points. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. What Paul is basically saying is, listen, I'm just a slave. I'm nothing special. Anything that I am is all by the grace of God. He makes that clear in other portions of the Bible. He says, I'm just a slave of Christ, and I am a steward given the responsibility to take care of the gospel of Christ, to keep it right, to preach it right, and to preserve it. He says, what's required of me is what's required of all of us, that we are faithful. 
We're to be faithful slaves in service of Christ. We're to be faithful stewards of the gospel that he's given to us. Then verse 3. But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What does he mean by that? He said, I could deceive myself. I can make myself think I'm doing pretty good when I'm not. He says, I'm not concerned about what you have to say. The only one that I'm concerned about is the one who has the ability to judge, the one who has the power to judge, the one who has the omniscience to judge, the one who is perfectly righteous to judge. He says in verse 4, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified in this. Just because I can't point out any sin in my life doesn't mean there isn't some. God knows my heart. He says it in the text, for he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. What is he talking about? Listen, we should not make it a practice to be evaluating the character and the conduct of other people in a slanderous way. We don't have all the information. There's coming a time when all that information is going to be available to God. And he will judge according to that. But he's the judge, we're not. And as I told you earlier... The reason why all of this starts is because of pride. We really think we're better than what we are. (laughs) We really think that we have the ability and the power to be like a lawgiver and a lawmaker and a judge and that we can evaluate and we have all the information and we get literally full of ourselves. And what does James say in the text in verse 9 of James 4? What we should be doing is lamenting and mourning and weeping. We should be weeping over our own sinfulness. I don't know about you, but I have enough sin in my own heart to deal with than to be trying to make up stuff on other people or to draw conclusions upon temporary, inaccurate, insufficient facts. One author said, when we are honest with ourselves and the sin of our hearts and how wretched they are, and how justifiably we ought to find ourselves in the dock in a courtroom, we will be less prone to assume the position of the bench. But if we are deceitful in our own hearts and lie about our position with God and refuse to humble ourselves before him, then in exalting ourselves and defaming others, we find ourselves right in the heart of this passage. The knowledge, as Alastair Begg said, the knowledge of our own failings makes us more and should make us more and more hesitant about expressing any form of criticism in others. The man who knows himself learns an increasing silence before other people's faults. So says James. So says God in his word. Those are hard words, aren't they? Hard to swallow. Hard to take. And I just want to give you some good news. If you're convicted today by God's spirit and by his word, run to the cross. Run to Christ. He is willing and able to forgive you of your sins. We need to confess our sins and repent of those sins. Let me read as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let me read what it says in 1 John. I love this passage, 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse 8. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now listen to these beautiful words by John. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He stands in our defense in heaven. And for the sins that we have committed, he stands there with the Father and says, I paid for that sin. I died for that sin. I paid the wrath for that sin. That man's forgiven. He's forgiven. All of it is forgiven. He goes on and says, And Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. Jesus himself gave himself a perfect, righteous Son of God to receive the full wrath of God in our place so that you and I would not have to receive the justice of God. If you're here today and this is the first time you've ever heard this message of the gospel and that you understand that you're in need of this salvation that is in Christ, I would encourage you, I would exhort you to run to Jesus Christ and to give your life to him. Trust him and him alone for your salvation, not your church, not your church membership, not a baptism, not some kind of righteous life you believe you're living, not trying to keep the Ten Commandments. None of those things will save you. If anything, they just bring more condemnation on someone who rejects Christ. So I would call on you to run to Jesus Christ for salvation, to give your life to him fully and completely. Repent of your sin. Trust him alone to be the satisfaction of the wrath of God for your sin. And if you're here today as a believer, the things we've discussed in the last few weeks about this topic hits us all. We all know that. We understand that. But if God has dealt specifically with you about a particular matter today by his spirit, I would encourage you to confess that to the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's someone that you need to get right with in this sanctuary or outside of this sanctuary, you need to make it right with God. And you need to make it right with them and go to them. This is not a time of condemnation. This is a time of expressing the very grace of God. What we celebrate here today is this. This bread... This juice that we drink here today is not something that condemns us. It has liberated us. We are free, free from the wrath to come. We're free from that kind of judgment that leads to an eternal torment in hell. We have been delivered by the power of God who has saved us. And this Lord's Supper is a declaration of that death that saved us. His body was a perfect life lived. We often refer to him as the second Adam. The first Adam failed us. The second Adam did not. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of, of obedience to him. His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. The blood of Jesus Christ is a clear picture of the very sacrifice of Christ where he poured out his life for us. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment to pray together. As we pray, you'll have an opportunity also to pray. If you're a believer here today, this Lord's Supper is for you. If you're a believer who has not repented of sin, I would encourage you to get right with that, with the Lord and with that person if you need to, before you take the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian and you have refused to be baptized, be obedient and be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. If you're a non-believer today, don't take the Lord's Supper. This is not some type of ceremony where you get infused grace or anything. This is for the church. But we welcome you to come into the church. Come and trust Christ. Let's pray together.